0: Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. The name Alistair, or Ali Gowans, who I'll be linking up with in just a moment, is well known for contributions made as an instructor, writer, broadcaster, and intuitive inventor of some of the most acclaimed salmon fly patterns ever devised. Ali Shrimp, which was voted Salmonfly of the Millennium, and Cascade are perhaps two of your best loved and best known creations. So what better place to start then than with a brief account of the development of the two flies I've just mentioned.
1: Alice shrimp evolved from a trip on a trawler. I saw those shrimps swimming beautifully and smoothly through the water and I thought, well, I wonder if I could make a fly that would emulate this movement. And so I went home and I made a fly that kind of represented the colours and emulated the movement. But, you know, it looked so different from every other fly in my box. But I didn't have the courage to use it for quite a long time. This enormous long tail, you see, was something quite new in salmon fishing. However, about four years later, I eventually, um, because we were catching no fish whatsoever and there were plenty of fish to be seen, I eventually had the courage to try this at Bromecroy on the River Tay. And lo and behold, I caught four fish that day when almost no one else caught any, and all of them were caught on this little shrimp fly. Well, it was very quickly named by the people there as Ali's Shrimp, and uh, that's where it came from. Cascade was rather more trivial in its development. You see, we had a lovely French gentleman who lived in Pitlochry during the summer simply to go salmon fishing. His name was Jean-Luc Martin, and Jean, in fact, was a, a very good fisherman and has written some books which, unfortunately, are in French and we can't read them. But um John had this passion for crystal flash, which he called madness. And at the time, there was a fishing tackle shop in Pitlochry, owned by a chap called Nick Mitchell, another excellent fisherman. And Nick and I got together and decided to make this fly to tease John. We would put some of this crystal hair in it, and um, we would tease him with it. When I was tying the fly with the crystal hair falling over the back, I thought, this reminds me of the French word for waterfall, which is cascade, and so the name Cascade was born. We thought that John would see the fly in Nick's shop and immediately ask about it. No doubt he saw it in Nick's shop, but he didn't ask about it. However, it looked really nice, so I made a few more. A few days later, I saw my great friend Mike Stewart fishing on the river. And when I went and asked him how he was getting on, he said it was dreadful. He couldn't catch a fish. I said, I've got the very fly for you, Mike. You should try this one. It's absolutely deadly. Well, lo and behold, Mike got a lovely fish, about fourteen pounds, on his third cast with the Cascade. And that was the first fish ever got on a Cascade. So testing new patterns? I don't know. I think if you're in the right place at the right time, Probably any fly would catch them, but if it's one
0: that you've just made, then it certainly is very, very pleasing. And there's me thinking that there was some sort of structured research and development to it all.
1: Every fly tyre makes lots of patterns, lots of different flies, their own variations or whatever. They say that 90% of the fish are caught by perhaps 10% of the anglers. If some of that 10% also tie flies, then it's quite possible that their flies have got a much better chance of becoming well used than other flies. And so I don't know whether its flies become successful because there is some magic about them or simply because they're used more than other flies. I have a friend who used to say he'd fished for 50 years and didn't know what salmon wouldn't take. So perhaps any kind of fly could catch them. And of course, when you look at the range of types of salmon flies that are made and used,
0: then you could come to that conclusion. So it's as much then down to watercraft as much in the hatch, or maybe even more so.
1: When I was a child, too young to fish myself, but I fished with my father. He would have the rod, and we fished very small streams, or burns, as we called them. And um, a lot of these streams were too small actually for fly fishing, and so instead of a fly, he would just have a... A leader and a single hook and a small worm on it, and he would drop this into various spots where he thought the trout were. And the game that he invented with me was that I had to tell him where I thought the trout were, and if I was wrong, he would correct me and point out why. What this meant was that from an early age I was being taught how to read rivers and understand where to find fish, and that is a very valuable skill for every angler. And that was what started my interest in fishing. I think as people progress in their fly fishing career, they give themselves greater challenges. And, you know, I I grew up in, in a community where there were lots of fly fishers. And I used to watch these guys fly fishing long before I was old enough to be able to cast a fly. You know, I became attracted to that. And that really was what started me fly fishing, was, was seeing these other chaps, and my, including my father, fishing fly. Very often they fish the fly during darkness and um, of course that made it quite difficult. And as a young person of course I wasn't allowed to go out in the dark, even if I was fishing, for fear of drowning. By the time I was around 11 years old I was big enough in stature to be able to try to cast a fly rod. My first fly rod was a green heart rod that had belonged to my grandfather. And it was actually a 12-foot trout rod. It was a very heavy rod. It was the only rod I had, and and I enjoyed using it greatly. Casting flies with it wasn't at all easy for for an 11-year-old, and I used to go back home sore from holding it. I couldn't afford an expensive silk line, so I used to make my own lines by buying flax sea line and greasing them up and just using that with a couple of flies. And that was how I got started fly fishing. Gradually, of course, I, I was able to go further on my bike and, and I would go to bigger rivers and I had to learn to cast better. And Eventually, uh, through the proceeds of my earnings as a paper boy, I was able to buy one of the newfangled hollow glass fly rods. And that made a huge difference to my abilities as a fly fisherman. That was all a long time ago. Since that time I've had a passionate interest in fishing and indeed my whole professional career has been based round living in places where I could fish before I went to the office or fish after I came home. So I've, I've, I've spent countless hours on rivers and lochs and countless hours reading and learning about fishing. It's just been the greatest passion ever in my life.
0: History, and know, is one aspect to your interest in fly fishing the history of salmon flies in particular, which hopefully we'll come back to in due course. But can we first take a bit more of a look through your progression through the fishing scene to becoming a recognised instructor?
1: You asked about becoming an instructor. The thought had never occurred to me. It wasn't on my horizon. But I was demonstrating fly tying at Long Nidri at uh, the last CLA game fair to be held in Scotland, when a rather bumptious fellow approached me and said, you have no business to be teaching people how to die flies. You're not an instructor. I was rather taken aback by this and I said to him, Well, what do I need to be to be an instructor? Oh, you should sit the Salmon and Trout Association instructor's certificate. So I said to him, Well, how do I do that? Oh, he says, I can give you the information on that. And I said, Well, that's grand. If you would be kind enough to do that, I'd be delighted. So about five minutes later, the chap appeared. He said, Which exam would you like to sit? And I said, Well, What are the options? He said, oh, you can do fly tying. He says, "Or or, or you could maybe try trout and salmon. Three exams there are. I said, that's fine. Just give me the papers. I'll do them all. And he looked at me with some kind of shock. Anyway, the date came and I went to their event and and I passed the three exams. I then immediately approached APGAI and I said to them, I'd like to sit your three exams now. And so a few months after doing the STANIC exams, I passed the APGAI exams and that was when I became an instructor. After doing the guy qualifications, I then moved on and a guy was formed. I'm a founder member of a guy, and I did their master's qualifications and went to America and did the FFF qualification. So I have pretty much all the certificates, all the qualifications that are available to someone in the UK.
0: Moving on now to the flies themselves, does a new pattern come about through wanting to devise one, or is it more of an inspirational moment when some idea or other suddenly flashes into your mind to get you around a specific set of difficult circumstances?
1: I've never really designed or devised the fly pattern just for the the wish to do so. I've always had some kind of thought as to could I improve a fly that we use at present or Or did I see an insect that I thought could be imitated better? And that's usually what causes me to play around with the fly tying vice. You can often look at insects and and think, well, I've got a fly that imitates this insect, but it doesn't float very well. Can I make a fly with materials that float better? And that's something I've done a few times. I've changed dressings that were based on feathers to dressings that use, for instance, deer hair, which inherently floats, or called the canard CDC, which is a feather which traps air and floats better. And so oftentimes I'll try to make a fly that performs better due to its construction.
0: And do you find then that generally modern materials outperform the more traditional dressings? Or do you prefer to switch between the two only when needs must?
1: There are such a lot of materials nowadays it's incredible. I mean, just thousands and thousands of fly tying materials. I think, from my point of view, I, I really prefer natural materials. There's something very nice about natural materials. I think I have a great empathy for natural materials. I much prefer to use them, although some of the synthetic materials are tremendously good, especially the hydrophobic ones for saltwater fishing and bite flies and the like. There are thousands of different fly time materials nowadays. It's an amazing array. When you walk into a shop, you're just confronted by walls of colour and texture and all sorts. Baffling. I do prefer natural materials and I use them wherever possible. I just think there's something nice about using natural materials. It just seems right to me. At one time, all salmon flies were made from feathers. But when the people in Canada ran out of feather flies and they couldn't easily be replaced, they turned to what they had available as flytime material, which was hair. And they started using hair instead of feather wings. And so materials such as deer hair and bucktail and squirrel and all sorts of animals were pushed into use as materials for salmon flies. These flies turned out to be more effective than the featherwing flies and were readily adopted in other parts of the world. And so suddenly we had this change from about the 1940s and 50s onwards, away from featherwing flies to hairwing flies. And now nearly all salmon flies are constructed using hair. It's mobile, it's hard wearing, it's easy to use and it's very effective. And that's probably why hair superseded feathers.
0: With her then is it horses for courses or can he still successfully mix and match according to personal preference?
1: My favorite hair is bucktail. Fine good quality bucktail I think is one of the nicest hairs that you'll ever get. For smaller flies squirrel and of course stoat's tail. There's nothing to beat Stoatsdale. I don't know what it is. It's beautiful, fine and straight, and it's a lovely here for making small flies. What about hook choice? Well, again, there are so many hooks that you can choose from. The main salmon fishing hook sizes are probably from about a 12 up to a, a 4, depending on where you fish. And of course, in addition to that, for really large flies, tube flies are very effective. I don't like using big hooks, and so I restrict my maximum hook size to a 6. So if I want to use a big fly, then I use a 2 fly with a number 6 hook on the back of it, rather than using a size 2 fly or a larger fly. In the old days, of course, they used enormous what they called salmon arms, huge single-hook flies, which um, that was all they had available, and so they had to use them, I suppose, but they were enormous. Creations.
0: Is there anything to be said about the various hook combinations, or is that too down to personal preference?
1: Sometimes we use single-hook flies, sometimes double-hook flies, and sometimes treble-hook flies. Which is best? Well, you know, I don't know that there's such a lot to choose between them. A lot depends on the confidence of the angler. It's interesting that in trout fishing, nearly all the flies are single hook. And yet it's probably much harder to hook a trout successfully than it is a salmon, which tends to hook itself. So I don't know that there's a big difference in the hooking ability of the fly. Some flies, I think, look better on a certain type of hook than others. And that might give me more confidence to use it in a certain way. But I think, you know, as long as you have a hook with a nice, sharp, and it's presented properly, the chances are you will hook fish regardless of the type of hook. Now, as far as kind of rating a fly and saying, well, this fly is better than another fly and so on and so forth, let me say that so much depends on being at the right place at the right time in salmon fishing that I don't know that the pattern of the fly is hugely important. I think within reason you could choose any from a range of patterns that would be successful on a given day and probably quite a wide range too. The most important thing is that you present the fly correctly. The fly has to approach the fish with an illusion of life, with something that makes the fish want to investigate it, makes the fish want to grab hold of it. I don't know why they do that whether it's the reaction of a kitten to a ball of wool, whether it's some involuntary response to something passing close to them, whether they see the fly as a threat or a danger, or whether it reminds them of food, I have no idea why they take flies. And whether a pattern is deemed to be a success or a failure, well, it depends, again, very much on the day. You could use the best fly in the whole world on days when fish wouldn't take it. Because they wouldn't take anything. Conversely, you might use a fly which is pretty much useless at any other time. On a day when the fish are committing suicide, it's a success. There is no way of knowing. But over the years, I guess, playing percentages, I would come down to what I call my boy flies. Any combination of black, orange and yellow. These three colours seem to me to be the most attractive to salmon.
0: On your website you refer to yourself as a potential guide or ghillie, but to what extent is buying in the services of a ghillie a good or necessary investment?
1: If you're a travelling angler and um, you're unfamiliar with the territory and unfamiliar with the customs and you may not even have brought your fishing tackle with you, then A professional, and I stress the word professional, guide should be able to equip you with everything you'll need to catch salmon and should be able to take you places where you have a reasonable chance of catching salmon. Or it may be that you contact a guide and the guide says to you, well, the fishing isn't any good at the moment, don't waste your money. And that's what a professional guide would do. Then you come to the other kind of ghillie or guide, the kind who is doing it for pocket money and who basically will take you somewhere, carry your bag, provide you with lunch and really couldn't care less about what you catch or anything else. I think guides, there will be good and bad and a lot will depend on the individual experience. I have people coming to me sometimes from far away, sometimes with absolutely no experience of fly fishing whatsoever. And the challenge for me would be, for instance, in a day I may have to teach someone the basics of fly catching and get them to catch some fish because that's what they want to do. It certainly is a big challenge. It's difficult not only for the guide, it's difficult for the guest as well sometimes because they're in a completely unfamiliar situation. Is it a good investment? Well, I like to think that in most cases, it is a good investment. I certainly wouldn't question whether or not I should have a guide in a strange situation. I would be completely lost. For instance, I went bone fishing the other year there, and without a guide, I wouldn't have had a clue where to start. I had all the gear, I had all the flies with me, everything else. But without the guide to take us to the places and explain the movements of the fish and so on, it would have been useless. The guide made the trip. And so often I've found that's been my experience when I've gone abroad or gone into strange situations. A good guide or a good gilly is worth their weight in gold.
0: Now, as you know, I'm no salmon fisherman. Yet even I appreciate the fact that the different casting techniques and making the right choices can be key to unlocking specific situations. That said, might it be that making the wrong choices or performing the right ones badly can have the reverse effect? So talk us through some of the different fly casting options and why you might perhaps choose one over the other.
1: Why do we have all these different... Fly casting techniques, overhead casts, snap casts, bay casts, roll casts. You can invent a cast, it seems, for every day of the week. But let's just think about this, because really there are only two distinct types of casts. Two families of fly fishing casts, if you like. There's the straight line casts, casts such as the overhead cast, and the pure snap cast. And then there are a different family, the elliptical motion casts if you like, the roll casts, and the spay casts, which spay casts really just take the roll cast and implant it in a set of different motions. And so you have these two basic casts. You have the straight line casts and The elliptical casts and within these two families you can cover every cast ever invented. The main advantage of the elliptical motion casts is that no back cast is involved. The cast is made with the line in front of you, the rod is moved in some elliptical motion to replace the line from in front of you and present it out in front of you again without any huge amount of space being required for a back cast. Conversely with an overhead cast if you want to cast say 20 yards and your fly is already out 20 yards you have to put it behind you 20 yards as well. So your fly cast with an overhead cast actually goes from 20 yards behind you to 20 yards in front of you so the fly moves 40 yards. Now with a stay cast the fly simply comes to your feet and is projected out without stopping back out 20 yards and only a small portion of the line goes behind you and so it is designed specifically for use in restricted places which to be fair most places are restricted. So taking these two families of casts, let's look and see what general rules there are for casting. Well, the first thing in fly casting is you do not want to be hit by the line or the fly when you're casting. To prevent that happening, you always make sure that the line in the fly passes you on the downwind side so that the wind cannot blow the fly into you. So that means that if you're using a double-handed rod, that means that you switch hands round, so you always have the line passing you on the downwind side, and that applies to all of the casts. If you have to cast into a wind, if you cast high in the air and into a wind, then the line will blow back. So when you're casting into the wind, you tilt the cast so that the line goes forward, downwards. So you aim down. Down into the wind, whether the wind is behind you or in front of you. You tend to minimise the amount of line that's exposed to the wind. So down into the wind. And that's how you deal with wind, regardless of the type of cast you're using. Some casts, of course, are designed especially for different wind conditions. So, for instance, if I'm fishing on a river and the wind's coming upstream, the single spay cast would ensure that my line was always on the upstream side of me because I use the outside hand for the cast. If the wind was coming downstream and I tried to use a single spade then there's great danger that the loop of line that I produce would blow into me and I could be hit by the fly. Very dangerous and so instead of that I make the loop on the downstream side of my body by using the double spade cast and that keeps me perfectly safe. And then there are Several casts that you can use in either situation. If the wind's coming upstream, the favoured cast would be the single spay or the snap C. If the wind is going downstream, then double spay or snake roll or a version of the snap on the downstream side. And that's how the spay caster deals with wind. I said the overhead caster simply would switch their hands to deal with wind but they would perform the same cast, the overhead cast. Now some casts, particularly the single spay cast, have got this reputation of being difficult to learn. The difficulty in learning spay casts generally stems from the fact that people try too hard, they use too much effort and too much speed to try and make the casts. It's amazing how little effort is required My advice to anyone hoping to learn to spay cast competently is to seek out a good instructor. Lots of people in doing these casts have ended up with injuries. In fact, lots of people who are very good at casting long distances have had a history of arm, shoulder and back problems. These are not the type of people who I would recommend that you go and seek advice from. If they can't look after their own bodies, then the precious little chance that they'll be able to look after yours.
0: Taking that one stage further, to what extent does getting your hands on the right tackle for any specific fly fishing job really make that big of a difference?
1: Well, if someone was to ask me what they should have for salmon fishing, my first question would be where do you intend to fish? What size of river do you intend to fish? Because the size of river. Generally speaking, dictates the length of rod that would be required. If you're fishing small rivers, then a trout rod might suffice. Going upwards from that, maybe a 12 or 13 foot double handed rod. Or middle sized river, maybe a 14 or 15 foot rod. If you're going to tackle really big rivers, then you might be looking at rods 16, 17, or even 18 feet long. Not normally required, I have to say, rods of that length in this country. So, You need to decide. The best person, usually, to help you to make that decision is your local tackle shop or shops. You should speak to them. These are the people who provide the service where you live. And you should go and ask them. Either them or if there's an angling club or perhaps a river owner or somebody else, seek local advice. I think is key to getting the right equipment of where you're going to fish. Even if somebody said to me, well, I'm going to fish the river Borgi, which is a small river in the north of Scotland, what length of rod do you need? Well, I would say, well, if you want a double-handed rod, probably 12 or 13 feet long, but I think you should go to Thirso or go to wherever else, go to Wick where there's a tackle shop, and ask there, because they'll be able to tell you exactly what would be the perfect outfit for their local rivers. With regards to what you buy now, you know, for instance, you want a 15-foot rod and a size 10, 11 line and decent reel and all the rest. Once you know, roughly speaking, what you want to buy, again, there are lots of choices out there. When I'm buying tackle for myself, what I'm looking for is tackle, which I think is reliable. So whatever I buy, I'm going to want to be satisfied that it's not going to fall apart. If I buy a reel, I want to know that I can get spare parts for it, that, you know, something wears out or whatever. When it comes to lines, I think you should always buy good quality. Personally, I buy Rio or scientific anglers or Cortland or airflow, some of the bigger makes of fly lines, because these guys have got good quality control. And I think, you know, buying the right line is important. When it comes to precisely choosing... The line and the size of line for your rod. It can be difficult. Difficult because it's not always apparent. You know, you buy a rod and it says on it, perhaps it takes a number 10 line. But that's only someone's opinion and it may not be your opinion. And in fact, it may not be the opinion of most people that use that rod. They maybe say, oh, it's better with a number 11 line on it. So what I do with my clients is if they come to me for lessons, then I offer them, you know, if they wish to try different lines, then they can try different lines on their rods. And I suggest that anyone, if possible, before they go and commit to 60 70 £100, pounds, whatever on a fly line, that they should try to beg, borrow or steal one to try on their rod before they go and buy one. Either that or if they know someone who has a similar rod and, you know, they can try it or whatever. But certainly, that final choice of line is better to try before you buy.
0: But unfortunately, not everyone will find themselves in a position where that might be possible. So what then? Is there nothing here then you can say to give prospective salmon anglers, particularly those maybe wanting to buy over the internet, either pointers on how to make the right choices, or if not, then at least how to avoid making the wrong ones?
1: There are probably lots of ways in which you can buy tackle which is inappropriate for your use. What I've already suggested in terms of seeking local advice and and trying to try before you buy and all the rest of it, these are the kind of things that will avoid you making serious mistakes when you come to purchasing tackle for yourself. Now if you're a salmon fisher or an occasional salmon fisher, you may be just thinking of taking up salmon fishing and your question to me is what? Output should I buy? Well, if you're looking at a double handed rod, the all rounder, if you like, is 15 foot. A 15 foot four piece or five piece rod, I would think, is the best one. If you only have one, it's the best one to have because you can cope with the big rivers and you can cope with medium rivers, perfectly small rivers, you can stand back from the bank a little bit. And that's not no hardship either. So I would say a 15 foot rod for. Probably a 10, 10, 11 line. Um, Nowadays, a lot of people prefer to use shooting heads rather than full lines. And you might want to consider that. They are easier to learn to cast and they have that attraction. It's also quite easy to cast a long distance with them. And so that might well be the outfit that you would choose. And what about leaders? Well, when it comes to leaders, first thing I would say is it's unsporting to fish too light. You should never fish any lighter a leader than you really have to. I'm not a great believer in breaking strains per se. I like to choose the leader according to its diameter and the size of fly that I'm using. What I want from the leader is I want the tippet, the part of the leader adjacent to the fly. I want that to allow the fly to move nicely in the water and give good presentation. I don't want the leader to be too thick and the fly movement to be inhibited by it Nor do I want the leader to be too thin and the fly to be cracked off or risk breaking in fish when I don't need to do that. So I fish by diameters rather than breaking strains. I always taper leaders. Always, always, always. Sometimes it's not much of a taper. Sometimes it's just a butt piece and a tippet. And other times it may be a purchased, continuously tapered leader. And sometimes it may be a leader that I've gone to some care and built up myself. There are lots and lots of recipes for leaders on the internet, and you can find these, look them up, make them up, and see what suits you best. If you want the easy option, you just go and buy taper leader. As to materials, well, for salmon fishing nowadays, I virtually always use fluorocarbon. I use Grand Max Soft Plus or Seagar fluorocarbon, and I've used these materials for a number of years now. And um, I'm perfectly happy with them. So that's what I use. What it sometimes means is I can be trout fishing on a loch um, with soft plus on a windy day. And uh, if I looked at leader spool, it would say 10 pound breaking strain, But the leader is only 3x. And in a windy day, it's fine. And I can fish the whole day without a tangle. So I think, you know, for me, fluorocarbon is fine. The only time I possibly want to use an island leader would be and I'm fishing very fine dry fly for trout.
0: And just for completeness, your own personal observations, thoughts, and comments on other salmon fishing techniques such as spinning, worming, and shrimping.
1: Other salmon fishing methods? Well, of course, you can fish for salmon uh, with a whole variety of methods. Um, you know, there are all sorts of spinning, harling, worming, shrimping, goodness knows. I mean, you can catch salmon in lots of different ways with lots of different baits, I'm quite sure. Where are they in salmon fishing? Well, if the method is permitted and someone chooses to use it, I don't have a problem with that. I wouldn't choose to use it. In fact, I used to do a lot of spinning and I used to fish a lot with uh, plugs and things at one time. I gave that up 20-odd years ago and I have not used a spinning rod since. In fact, even when I go sea fishing, I fish fly. I've just become fly only. It's, It's not religion and I'm not saying I wouldn't ever spin again. It's a matter of choice. I catch fish the way I want to catch fish, not the way I have to catch fish.
0: How then would you rate these on a direct comparison with each other in terms of performance requirements?
1: The skills relative to each of these methods. Well, some of them are pretty much skill-free. I think throwing a flying condom into a river and winding it back in the hope that it'll be intercepted by a salmon, and very often is, I think it's pretty much skill-free. So at the lower end of the skill spectrum, the flying condom. Also a very damaging bait that hooks a lot of fish very deep down and causes severe injury. So baits like that, I think I would have a moral objection to using and I would ask most thinking anglers, please don't use these sort of... In this era of uh, catch and release and so on, flying condom is bad, worms are every bit as bad. Given half a chance, a fish will um, swallow worms, and um, you know you're causing deep wounds. And I don't think it's appropriate.
0: Are prawns then any less damaging? They can certainly take the share of the fish. Why then shouldn't anglers be as keen on them as the salmon obviously are?
1: Shrimps and prawns, well, they can be very, very deadly. And in fact, if you have some skilled anglers fishing pools with shrimps and prawns you'll probably find that most of the fish that are taking are likely to be caught very very quickly over a matter of a day or two days or whatever. What we found when shrimps and prawns were banned was that the catches didn't diminish but instead they were spread over a greater number of days and they were spread much better between anglers. So instead of having one or two greedy anglers catching nearly all of the fish with shrimps and prawns, we had a whole selection of anglers then catching fish on the fly and spinning and so on. My own personal choice is that I don't fish in any way other than fly fishing. And that's just my choice. I'm not saying I won't ever spin again, I'm just saying that I prefer to catch fish with fly.
0: That's all well and good as a general principle. But not every situation lends itself to having even a remote chance of connecting with a fish, sticking only to the fly.
1: I think that there are some places where it's very difficult to fish fly and uh, other methods are probably more effective. than may be case of some people who are not able to fish fly, but they can enjoy their fishing using other methods.
0: So that's the basic salmon fishing lesson out of the way. But despite teaching and guiding people to fish, there is, as I hinted earlier, another side to the work you do on the running water game fishing scene, because I know you're also very involved in the two worlds of conservation and fly fishing history. So taking them in that order, tell us a little about your conservation work and the importance of the role from your perspective.
1: My definition of conservation is conservation of wild creatures and their habitat. And sadly we're not very good at preserving either the habitat or the wild creatures. Salmon are just one of these creatures. But salmon have got a unique place because they're a bit like the miner's canary, except that they sample so many different habitats. I mean, a young salmon born high in a mountain stream samples all the environment from there, right down through the river, right out through the estuaries, through seas and oceans, and then it comes all the way back and repeats that journey on its spawning run. Any one of these habitats that is destroyed, overfished, or subject to pollution or whatever, any one of these can break the link in the salmon's chain. So the salmon is a very good indicator of the state of the planet.
0: What specifically has, or maybe hasn't been done over the years, to bring about the situation which Atlantic salmon as a species currently find themselves in?
1: You ask what has not been done that has led us to our present state of affairs. Well, we really haven't looked after the planet. A lot of the things that men have done have been for economic reasons rather than conservation or sustainability reasons. and. Um, I'm afraid it's all going to come to a horrible end unless things are done very quickly. There's lots of things that can be done. Whether there is the political and economic will to do these things is another matter. I rather fear that it'll be too little, too late, even on today's date. If we carry on the way we're going, there is a real possibility that within the next half century, we will have a world which is practically without fish. Celebrated author Mark Kurlansky has written a book. It's called World Without Fish. And it predicts that by 2050 we may be in a very, very bad situation due to lack of fish, pollution and so on. There's no point in me trying to relate what is in that book. It's a great book and I think all politicians, for a start, should be made to read it. But anyone reading this book will find it most enjoyable and highly enlightening, and it's designed for people from nine years on. As to Atlantic salmon, well, you know, we have two kinds of Atlantic salmon in the world now. We have domesticated Atlantic salmon, and I think they have a fairly bright future, probably. What does the future hold for Atlantic salmon? Well, to be honest, it's not looking too good. Wherever you look, there are problems. There are problems due to land use and drainage, afforestation, acid rain. There are problems due to overfishing in the sea, not only for Atlantic salmon, but also for the fish that they feed upon, and particularly for the fish that they feed upon that are then being fed to farmed Atlantic salmon. Global warming is another problem. We don't know the extent of it yet, But there are serious concerns that the warming of the ocean currents is moving the Atlantic salmon's food to different areas of the ocean. And uh, the fish may not be able to respond to this quickly enough to save them. So I think in the short term, the Atlantic salmon is in trouble. In the longer term, unless we do everything we can to help them, they will probably become quite a rare fish. If you want to take a fish like Atlantic salmon, which has this complex life cycle and has all these problems stacked against it at the moment, and you want to make its future even more bleak, then what you do is you take these fish which have evolved in the wild to suit their own particular place, their own particular rivers. And you take them from that and you breed them artificially. You take the genetics that nature has for, in, in the case of Scotland, the last eight to ten thousand years evolved and you throw them out the window by breeding them yourself and then stocking them. Stocking of wild fish I think is pretty well comprehensively proven now to be an absolute disaster. And The quicker that we educate the public, and particularly anglers, that we should not be interfering with these fish when they're breeding, the better. So how do you go about doing that? One way in which anglers are helping is through catch and release. Now, catch and release isn't the panacea. It isn't going to be the one thing that can save the whole of the salmon as a species. But it is a practical method in which anglers can help, especially to save female fish. There are lots of guidance on how to safely release fish. The one most important rule is do not overtire fish when you're playing them on the rod. Use tackle which is fit and strong and can land the fish as quickly as possible And keep the fish in the water for as long as possible. If you need the glory shot, lift it out the water briefly and put it straight back in. The longer a fish is out the water, the worse it will become. Someone once said to me that holding a fish out of water was like asking a person to run a half marathon and then hold their breath for five minutes keep them in the water, let them breathe, they will recover quickly if they have been played quickly and not overtired. And that, I think, is the main principle of catch and release. But let me add another question to this, because catch and release is grand. But if we are going to fish only catch and release, it brings a moral dilemma to the angler's mind, because now we are fishing knowing that we're going to wound a wild creature, we're sometimes going to to wound it badly, critically, it may bleed a lot, it may die, and we're doing that for enjoyment. And I have a little problem with this because I don't like to be thought of as someone who hurts animals, creatures for enjoyment. If I catch a fish, and if it's not going to recover uh, successfully, then I think it's only right that that fish should be killed and put on the table. And that relieves me of my moral dilemma. If I know that I can occasionally kill a fish without fear of any repercussions, one should be able to do that. And if one cannot do that, if the stocks are so poor that we can't kill a fish and my view is we should not be fishing for them. Another of my hobby horses if you like just now is that we are asked to put back all our spring fish up until the end of May which is good it's a great way of preserving spring fish but on the first of June on for instance the River Tay people are allowed to fish with worms with the danger of hooking fish deeply and causing a mortal wound. And then, of course, at the end of the season, the Tay District Salmon Fishery Board wish to extend the season by a fortnight and subject these fish that have been, in the springtime, regarded as precious, subject the same fish to an extra fortnight of angling at the back end of the season. And this is simply just a means of extracting more money from the fish. The question is, is a salmon just an amount of money to be shared between fishery owners and the like or is it a
0: creature that we should really try to help? And with fish numbers in mind, I understand that you was instrumental in producing one of the major conservation steps of recent years, most likely to facilitate more return fish living to tell the tale, that being the revised fish weight calculator.
1: It became possible to produce an updated version of a fish weight calculator due to an enormous amount of work done by my son, Dr. Andrew Gowans, when he was doing his first degree. He went to the trouble of weighing Scale reading and taking 26 measurements from over 800 salmon, which was a colossal task. When he had all this data, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to try and figure out what the best fit is to get a model for a salmon? Again, Andrew did most of the donkey work on that because he is the statistician, and we produced the fish weight calculator which I'm delighted to say has been accepted by a lot of people all over the world as being one of the best means of empirically calculating the weight of a fresh salmon.
0: Most definitely a contribution to be proud of, and a concept which must eventually earn itself even greater credibility for all fish species if angling generally is to have a future. And now to finish with, what about your interest in the history of salmon trout flies? What would you like to tell us about that?
1: The first written record of fly fishing comes about 100 AD and was written by a Greek called Alien who reported that in Macedonia people fished for spotted fish with a hook with a red wool body and two hackles from a cock's neck and that is the first ever written evidence of fly fishing. Of course fly fishing Probably existed quite a time before that. About 1400 years later, fly fishing appeared in English literature in a book dated 1496 by Dame Julia Berners, which mentioned 12 different fly dressings. I have an old fly book dated 1790 and it contains some old salmon flies and trout flies. The salmon flies have just got a single loop of gut for the eye. And the trout flies are tied on short snoods of gut. In both cases, each individual hook has been hand made, so they've all been forged and, and cut by hand. At that time, you know, the 18th century, I think all the hooks basically were made by hand, although there is some evidence that around 1560, which is a long time earlier, modern hooks or machine-made hooks, were starting to be made in redditch by the needle makers there. It was towards the end of the 19th century before eyed hooks became available. And for a start, there was a lot of resistance to people using them because they didn't believe that the, the fly would swim properly with an eyed hook. And it was a gentleman called H. de pell who was largely responsible for popularising eyed hooks in the UK. The first salmon flies were made mostly with natural materials. They would have some dyed wool and dyed seals fur and the like but they were generally speaking very simple flies, simple turkey wings and uh, very often a pampered hackle wound along the body, the body usually made of seals fur or wool. They would have a bit of uh, silver or gold tinsel because they had tinsel available to them because they used it for making military uniforms, for decorations. Come the mid-19th century, with the expansion of the British Empire and explorers going abroad and and collecting samples of of different birds, exotic bird species that, that had bright plumage, these birds were brought back and the plumage was used to make fishing flies. So we had things like Indian crow, jungle cock, and a whole host of other birds brought back and used to make fishing flies. Have you ever wondered why the classic salmon fly has this sort of unique shape of wing? Then that has been explained in the past as being just the simple thought process that if trout ate tiny little insects, tiny little flies, then maybe salmon ate bigger flies. And so people thought perhaps salmon eat butterflies. And so a lot of the old salmon flies were actually designed to look a bit like a butterfly. So these classic flies, and they had their heyday from the middle of the 19th century to about the middle of the 20th century, thousands and thousands of patterns of flies. Far, far too many ever to consider even listing. I don't know if there's a list anywhere in the world that would include all of them. Flies like jock-scott. Silver Wilkinson, Black Doctor, Silver Doctor, Thunder Lightning, lots and lots of flies, and some of them with highly evocative names, and almost invariably all of them including bright colours. But these classic flies were very difficult to tie. They had lots of materials. A Jock Scott, for instance, has twenty-six different materials included in its dressing, so it's very time-consuming and slow and laborious. And to be honest, the fish. Don't care. The fish will take a very simple fly every bit, in fact maybe even more so than a complicated one. As the British Empire expanded and people migrated to places like Canada, they took with them fishing rods and flies and the like. Uh, They were the classic flies of old days with, with gut eyes and so on. When they ran out of flies and had to make their own, they didn't have access to all these wonderful exotic materials that the Victorians had taken back to Britain. So again, they they reverted to the materials that they had available, and these were typically hair and various colours of of wool and tinsel and the like. But they didn't have the feathers, and so they substituted hair for feathers, and the hair wing flies were born. They became very popular in the UK around about the middle of the 20th century and they are, they still form the mainstay of fishing flies that are used today. They are much simpler to tie than the the classic flies and they are much more effective usually than the classic flies. And then of course around about I think around about nineteen fifty, nineteen sixty, the first tube flies appeared, where instead of tying the fly on a hook, it was tied on a tube. The line was threaded through the tube, and the hook was tied at the back. And this meant that you could have a a tube fly and hooks of any size you liked, any type you liked. And if you you know if the hook was damaged, you could just change it and use the fly. Furthermore, tube flies appeared to be very. Attractive to the fish and so tube flies have stayed with us a long time Around about the same time as tube flies uh, Richard Warrington came up with his solution to making a long sinuous fly which he wanted to represent an elver. And this fly had a metal shank and a hook A small treble hook affixed to the back of it, but articulated so it could move freely And Warrington's flies attracted a great deal of support as well And so the whole shape of flies was developing. Nowadays, in addition to all the hair and feathers and so on from the past, we also have a whole host of synthetic materials. Now, they have caught on to some degree in salmon fly fishing. You know, people will add strands of of flashing material to their flies and so on, but Unlike other forms of fly fishing, such as pike fishing and saltwater fishing, where synthetic materials have replaced natural materials almost, in salmon flies most materials are still natural. Things like bucktail and various other kinds of hair are the most common, but often with a few flashy bits of synthetic material. Where will it go in the future? Well, who knows? It may go that synthetics become the mainstay of the salmon fly fisherman.
0: Going back now to your own place in the history of salmon fly fishing, and remembering that it's already been voted salmon fly of the millennium, where, in your opinion, does the alley shrimp stand in the overall roll call of honour?
1: Well, I think I would be embarrassed to say too much about it because I invented the thing. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to look up the answer. There is a book called The Complete Fisherman's Fly. It's edited by a chap called Max Fielding. Let me quote from the book, so here's what the book says. One of the biggest changes in fly design came when Alistair Gowans produced his famous Alley Shrimp. This fly and its variants must have taken countless thousands of fish since its invention and it is used worldwide. It is rare to find someone who does not have at least one Alley Shrimp in his box. Indeed. Many fishers seldom use anything else. I'm often asked about alley shrimp. So when people ask how much I've made from alley shrimp, cascade and a whole host of other flies that I've invented and are now copied, I tell them I've made virtually nothing. These flies are my gift to the poor.
0: And salmon angling is undoubtedly the richer for that contribution, just as audio angling is all the richer for this one. My thanks then to Ali Gowans for taking the time out to talk through the whole subject of Atlantic salmon fly fishing with us here.